So during this season of Lent, we are taking time on Sunday mornings to rethink normal. After a hard year of uncertainty, disruption, frustration, and sorrow, we're all eager to get on with life. But what do we want normal to look like? It would be a mistake for us to rush out of this long pandemic winter without taking stock, without stopping to ask what we learned about ourselves, the world we live in, and the God who made us. One of the things I've learned this past year is how much I dislike being told what to do. I guess I've always known this about myself, but it was especially hard to escape this fact over the last 12 months. I like to make my own decisions. I don't want to have to watch the news every Friday afternoon in order to find out where I'm allowed to go or who I'm allowed to see. But that that has been our lot this year. Our independence and autonomy, they've been challenged. And it hasn't been all that fun. Could it be, however, that there's a lesson for us in the midst of this? As much as I hate to admit it, I think there is. And that lesson, it's a vital one about salvation and self-denial. Smack dab in the middle of Mark's gospel, Jesus throws down the gauntlet. In a sequence of three short scenes, he brings us face to face with who he is, what he's come to do, and what it means for those of us who want to follow him. I've just read those scenes to you, and I want to do this this morning. I want to look at them in sequence as we try to rethink normal and reconsider what it means for us to Jesus to follow Jesus faithfully. So we begin with scene one, the confession. Starts at verse 27. And Jesus went on, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now that is odd. Caesarea Philippi was 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, which is where most of Jesus' ministry took place. Caesarea Philippi marked the northeast corner of the ancient boundaries of the land of Israel, but it had been overtaken by the Romans. It was a bustling commercial area that lay along the trade routes into Syria, and it was known famously as a center of pagan worship. In other words, it was not likely to be all that hospitable to Jesus and his disciples. Nonetheless, that's where he takes them. And it's not clear why, but my sense is that he wanted to take them out of their normal context and away from their normal routines, away from familiar faces and places, in order to ask them to take a fresh look at him and at themselves. Well, the scene continues. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now there are plenty of opinions about Jesus at this time. Everyone had their own idea about who he was, a prophet, a mystic, a rabble rouser. But Jesus wanted to know what the disciples had to say. Taking up the role of spokesman, Peter put it boldly on the table. You are the Christ. Literally, Christ means anointed one. It's a kingly reference. And for the Jews, it meant the king. The one they'd been waiting for ever since David. The Christ was the king who would conquer their enemies, save God's people, and then rule over them in peace forever. 
Up until this point, the disciples hadn't dared to say what they actually thought about Jesus. But here it was. Now, Jesus' response seems strange to us. We expect an affirmation or at least a knowing smile. But what we get is a warning to keep quiet. Peter, of course, is correct. Jesus is the long-awaited king. But the time isn't right for the world to know. Because as soon as word gets out, Jesus' days will be will be numbered. Calling Jesus king has consequences. Now it's hard to overstate the importance of this first scene. In Mark's gospel it takes place right in the middle of the narrative and it acts as a hinge. From this point on Jesus heads south to Jerusalem and to his death. And from this point on, his teaching takes on a much more profound and personal character. Everything changes when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Change doesn't always come easy, though, does it? And that's what we see in scene two, the rebuke. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things... And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And, three, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's hard for us to imagine how disorienting this moment must have been. When Peter called Jesus the Christ, that title brought with it a multitude of images and expectations, royal splendor, victory in battle, national vindication, triumph, abundance, joy, and ultimately peace. In one sentence, Jesus destroys all of this. The Christ will suffer He'll be rejected by everyone who matters, and then he'll be killed. By the time Jesus said that he would rise from the dead, the disciples almost certainly weren't even listening. But once again, Peter takes up the role of spokesman, but this time he rebukes Jesus for what he said. So Peter has just called this man his king, but now he takes him by the arm, he pulls him aside, and he begins to admonish him. And that's because Peter wants to manage Jesus. Now we all come to Jesus with expectations. Some of us want a therapist, someone to listen to us, understand us, and help us with our anxiety. Some of us want a rich uncle who will take care of us and reward us with good things. Some of us want a king who will reorder society according to our desires and protect our interests. How often then do we try to manage Jesus according to our expectations? To tell him what's best for him and for us. Peter demonstrates with painful clarity that it is possible to know exactly who Jesus is. To boldly proclaim your faith in him and then to turn around and deny him by treating him as a consultant or merely as a friend instead of as our king. So what is Jesus' response to Peter? And to us, it's a forceful rebuke. This scene which began with Peter rebuking Jesus ends with Jesus rebuking Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
That is a stunning reversal. And here's the lesson in it for us. We all come to Jesus with expectations of who he is and what we want him to do for us. And when he fails to perform, we tell him where he's gone wrong and how we want him to change. At which point Jesus says to us, no, no, it's you who need to change. You need to rethink your priorities. You need to change your perspective. It's not enough to call Jesus king. We need to let him reign. In scene one, the confession, Peter proudly stood above the other disciples. In scene two, the rebuke, he was brought down to size, standing with the rest of us. Well, now we come to scene three, the calling, in which Jesus turns Peter's rebuke into a teachable moment for everyone. So verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever who, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." So up until this time, Jesus' public ministry, it's been full of healings, uh, miracles, and calculated rebukes of the social and spiritual elite, something that most of Jesus' audience would have enjoyed immensely. But now, Jesus turns to the crowds and he explains that if they keep following him, things are going to get harder, much harder. You know, at this point, the crowds have no idea that Jesus is going to be crucified but they do know what a cross is. And they know that the only people who take up a cross are those who have been condemned by the Romans and forced to carry their own means of death in a public walk of shame in order to be killed. Jesus wants his followers to understand what the consequences will be if they choose to stick with him. So eternal salvation awaits But it stands on the other side of self-denial, humiliation, and even death. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, he says. Those are hard words to hear. When I was a kid, one of my favorite toys was a weeble wobble. You you may remember these. These are basically three-foot-tall inflatable punching bags for little kids. Weeble wobbles, they're curved on the bottom, and they're weighted down with sand at the center so that every time you knock it down, it slowly springs back upright. This is great for kids, and it's also great for parents because it keeps them occupied forever. Now, most of us go through life like weeble wobbles, We are constantly getting knocked down, bounced around, and shoved to the ground. But our ballast, what brings us back upright, it's our sense of self. Our sense of self-preservation, self-awareness, and self-promotion. Our sense of self, who we are and what we desire, is the sand at the bottom that orients us to the world. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you're going to need to cut out that ballast and tether yourself to me instead. 
So we all know that eventually every kid reaches a certain age when they can do more than knock their weeble wobble over. They can actually knock it into the next room. That ballast, it counts for very little when the force applied against it gets stronger and stronger. And the same is true of our lives. When we live with ourselves at the center, we're able to make sense of life for a time. But eventually life is going to knock you into the next room. We need a center that'll hold. We need Jesus. And in order to put Jesus at the center, we have to remove ourselves from the center. But self-denial, as you all know, it's more than a one-time decision. It's a way of being. Whether we like it or not, it's something we have to choose again and again and again and again as we make our way each day through the world. Now, it's common practice during Lent uh, to give up something like chocolate or television. And we do this in order to remind ourselves of all that Jesus gave up for us. This is not a bad discipline. It can be a good thing. But I want you to know that there's more to self-denial than good self-discipline. And I think we sometimes confuse the two. Self-denial is less a form of self-discipline than it is a state of attention. I'm going to say that again. Self-denial is less a form of self-discipline than it is a state of attention. Let me try to show you what I mean with with a, a somewhat simplistic example. So here's what might go through the mind of someone who is focused on self-discipline as they enter into the season of Lent. I wonder what I should give up for Lent this year. It's such a good thing to do. It always makes a difference. Should I give up candy or carbs? I I probably eat more carbs than candy, which means that I'll probably lose more weight if I give those up. And that would be nice, in addition to being spiritually good, because I could stand to lose some weight. Yeah, I think... I think I might give up carbs this year. That internal conversation might feel um, familiar to some of you. Uh, It feels familiar to me, if I'm honest. Now here's an example of what might go through the mind of someone who's seeking to deny himself or herself at the beginning of Lent. Listen to the differences. Lord, how would you have me approach Lent this year? Silence. Silence. Should I give something up? Take something on? Silence. Do you have something special for me during this season? Silence. Lord, I know I've been drinking more lately. It doesn't feel like a dangerous amount, but two glasses of wine is more than one. I don't really want to admit it, but I'm concerned about why. I'm drinking more often. Is this something you want for me to set down for a season? Do you see the difference? People who are self-disciplined, they are still very much in control of what they do. People who deny themselves are not. They cut out the ballast of self-interest. They tether themselves to Jesus and they let him take control. And that is a lot riskier. It is scary to actually sit with open hands before the Lord of the universe and ask him to take control. But it is also a lot more rewarding. 
Throughout this past year, we've been asked to deny ourselves a host of basic freedoms and beloved activities. We have isolated, distanced, and masked. We have sacrificed in order to protect others. And it's been hard, and it's been costly. But I think we need to see it not as an anomaly. We ought to view this year as a parable for what normal looks like for followers of Jesus. Following Jesus doesn't mean denying ourselves nice things on occasion. It means denying that ourselves are at the center. It means ceding the throne of our lives to the promised king of Israel. It means recognizing the persistent division in our own hearts as we call Jesus king one moment and then try to manage him the next. And it means walking behind him to the cross regardless of the suffering and the shame. It means standing before him with open hands and heart, attentive to where he wants to lead us. Now let me be clear, I will be thrilled when all of the limitations that have been forced on us this year are lifted. But I will be sorry if we fail to learn the lesson that sacrifice and self-denial are central to living out the gospel. Jesus took his disciples out to the edge of the promised land where everything was unfamiliar and he did it in order to jolt them awake. From that point on, he turned and made his way deliberately to Jerusalem where suffering, death, and ultimate triumph awaited. I would love for this past year to have the same effect on us. I would love it if the hardship, frustration, and suffering of this pandemic shook us free of our self-centeredness and caused us to get serious about following Jesus, denying ourselves, taking up our crosses, and then joining him in glory everlasting. I want to end with a story about a friend who exemplifies this shift. About a decade ago, she chose to take Jesus at his word, to deny herself, and then to follow him wherever he led. So Lynn, Lynn was two years ahead of me at the University of Virginia. She was one of my older sister's good friends, and she was the kind of girl that everyone wanted to be around. She was funny, she was attractive, and she was willing to talk to slightly awkward younger brothers. After college, Lynn completed a physician's assistant program at Emory University, and she entered the workforce, eventually specializing in emergency orthopedic medicine. She was doing important work, and she was making a real difference in people's lives, but the Lord had more for her, and she wanted it. So in 2010, Lynn accepted an invitation to join a medical missions team in Haiti after the devastating earthquake that year. And that trip changed her life. Thrown into the midst of chaos and crisis, she found that she thrived. And over the next 10 years, she would join Samaritan's Purse on five more medical missions to regions in crisis. She returned to Haiti during a cholera outbreak. And then she went to Ecuador after an earthquake. In 2017, she went to Iraq where she worked in an emergency field hospital in Mosul. Surrounded by six-foot-thick blast walls and the constant sound of machine gun fire, Lynn assisted in surgeries and she cared for men and women and children. 
When she was asked in an interview if this deployment was frightening, she replied with a resounding, yes. Two years later, she headed to the Democratic Republic of Congo to care for people in the midst of an Ebola outbreak. Lynn wrote, for the first time, I was dealing with going to the front lines of a deadly infectious disease outbreak. I had to seriously consider what I believed about God, whether I would operate out of fear or out of faith. Well, finally, this past April, when the pandemic was at its worst in New York City, Lynn joined a team of 70 medical professionals in a field hospital in Central Park. Over several weeks, they took care of overflow patients from Mount Sinai Hospital, treating roughly 50 patients at a time. And you, you may remember this field hospital because it was much maligned in the press because it was Christian ministry. But that didn't stop Lynn and others from serving. In an interview this past year, Lynn was asked about working in the midst of crises. And she said this, listen to what she says. She said, I am one of the many who counted a blessing and privilege to serve, and this in spite of myself. Every time I've been asked to go, I've grappled with fear and trust. We can be so good at self-preservation that we miss our calling. We can be so good at self-preservation that we miss our calling. It is a profound statement that gets to the heart of Jesus' invitation to the crowds in Caesarea Philippi. Now there's a photograph of Lynn taken during her time in Iraq. And she's sitting by herself on the edge of an army cot, looking up at the camera with dark circles under her eyes and a broad smile on her face. She has an IV stuck in her right arm And in her left, she's holding a bag that's collecting her own blood. It is an incredible picture because it captures so well the invitation of Christ. The one who shed his blood for us invites us to shed our blood for others that by giving up ourselves for the sake of the gospel, we might know the joy of our salvation. And here's the astonishing thing. In that salvation, not only do we find joy, we finally find ourselves. Lynn's beaming smile says it all. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this image of a woman taking her own blood and setting it aside for others that they might live. Thank you for the bags under her eyes, for the broad smile on her face, for the assurance that this picture gives that when we deny ourselves, when we take up our cross and when we follow you, we share your triumph and your salvation and we know the joy of being who you created us to be. Give us courage to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow you. Amen.